the other day I was talking to a student on the phone, someone I've worked, been working with for an, a number of years, and she was telling me about a difficult situation in her family that she was working with, very challenging and stressful. And she said what was interesting about it is that her meditation practice really helped her. You know, she was very energized by the situation, and a, her mindfulness was right there. There was a lot of openness and interest in what was going on. She could tell that the equanimity was there, not all the time, but really that was where she could come back to in her experience. She was in touch with her body and her breathing and all the different ways the emotions played through. So could tell that the practice really worked for her. But then the question came up in our conversation, as it often does, but I know that when this situation resolves itself, I'll go back to my old habits. I won't be as mindful. I won't be as connected to what's happening. That aliveness won't be there. Why is that? Does this, and it brings up this question we've often had as a discussion, is does this practice actually change us? What are we doing it for? How does it manifest for us? And here on retreats, I think you may have a similar experience. You've come out of the busyness of your daily lives with all of the different pulls and pushes of that and the multitasking that most of us do most of the time. And we come on retreat deliberately cultivating mindfulness. We're in this place that supports the practice. And hopefully, I think almost necessarily, our mindfulness does get heightened because of that, because there are so many um, things that are going on. So we're doing so much to actually support that. Yet what happens afterwards? Because mind pract our practice isn't about getting good at doing retreats, mm -hmm. learning how to breathe well or walk slowly. If that was the sum of it, I don't think any of us would be here. It's not a good payoff for how painful it is to be on retreats. This practice really is about how do we live our lives. And as I was reflecting on this question, because so many people ask about it, talk about it, you know, what does this practice actually do? Does it have an effect? Is it worth the time and energy that I need to put into it? And it, it brought up um, another discussion that's very alive at the moment in our culture, particularly here in uh, America, and that's about happiness. There's a lot of research going on at the moment about happiness. And there, used, there is a thing um, that's been studied they call the happiness set point. And that's the idea that all of us have a basic level of happiness. And you know, I'm not defining that word, but this is just to keep it simple. A basic level of happiness that's pretty stable. And no matter what happens, if something really great happens, and the example they always use is someone wins the lottery, like that's the best thing that could happen to you. Let's say someone wins the lottery, or they go through a period of great loss or injury or, or illness. What they often find is sometime after that significant event, the people don't say, stay really happy or really dejected. They come back to this balanced point called the happiness set point. And there used to be a thinking that it didn't change, that you know whatever happened, really good or really difficult, you would eventually come back to this kind of status quo of happiness. But the thinking now 
actually as they do more research on it, and there's a huge amount of study and research and books being written on this theme, it's quite amazing, um, is that it actually can change. That yes, if we don't do anything different, if we just stay in our same old patterns, then of course that set point will stay the same. But the research is saying that happiness and all of the different variations, whatever word you might use in, that, in its place of joy or contentment or peace, is actually a, a quality that we can cultivate. Um, one of the books I really like on this subject is called How We Choose to Be Happy, The Nine Choices of Extremely Happy People by Rick Foster and Greg Hicks. They've actually come and done workshops here at Spirit Rock, and I found that book very helpful. But what, what it's emphasizing is that there is actually an understandable process, process that goes on that leads people to shift their happiness set point. And what's clear is that we're actually making choices all the time about our, how we're relating to our experience. And with some understanding or even some natural intuition, we can make choices that lead to more happiness instead of just keeping us stuck or actually going in the other direction. And another one of our good friends and co-teachers, James Barras, who's usually at this retreat, is currently in the third, I think, round of a program, a class he calls uh, Awakening to Joy. And it's a six-month class series that now hundreds and hundreds of people have taken and found the benefit of actually consciously working with turning their attention to places they find joy in their life and seeing how much that actually increases their capacity for joy. So from this direction, from the happiness um, side of things, they are seeing that if there's a conscious attention to what actually brings happiness, that there can be a shift in that, that we're not stuck in our set point. But in this discussion, I think what's really important to come to understand for ourselves and in general conversation is, what do we actually mean by happiness? And I think this is a great question to explore. John Stuart Mill says that, ask yourself whether you are happy and you cease to be so. Those only are happy who have their minds fixed on some object other than their own happiness. Basically meaning happiness is kind of a byproduct. But I actually think he's missing it a little, or I think the reason that this is mainly true is that most people don't understand what actually happiness is or what brings them true happiness. They have a very distorted idea of what happiness is, and they're actually very bad at predicting what will make them happy. There's a, a guy who's written a book about this, Stumbling on Happiness, Daniel Gilbert. It's a really interesting book where he talks about how bad we are at predicting what will make us happy and also what will make us unhappy. It says, again, like the, the lottery or the sickness thing, you know, we think that will be a terrible thing and we'll be really unhappy, not getting tenure or not getting the job we want. And we're bad at that. We're also bad at predicting what will make us happy. We think getting in a relationship, having children, getting a certain job, money, 
all those kinds of things, travel will make us happy. And his research, and he's really done research on this, has shown that often we don't have a clue and that those very things that we so wish for actually bring us the most amount of suffering. And just a simple example is traveling, especially the kind of traveling where you're visiting a lot of different places. There's so much um, glamorous advertising about going traveling, you know, seeing people in exotic places, and there's always the couple with the woman in the flimsy dress walking along the beach at sunset, and they just seem blissfully happy. I don't know anyone who's ever had that experience, but it's <laughs> always put out there as what, you know, should happen. Um, so we think we should enjoy traveling. It seems like that's a good thing to do, but what happens when you travel? The airline loses your luggage, your hotel room looks over the parking lot, you're often cold and hungry and tired and lost. And you know, as you come back from the trip and people say, how was it? You go, it was great, because that's what you think you should say. You meant to enjoy traveling, but it's actually very challenging. And I think a lot of our experiences are like that. We think that things should make us happy, they don't. And then we think there's something wrong with us because we're not getting this expected payoff from this thing, this relationship, this job, these children, this, this experience, whatever it might be. We're very bad at doing that because we haven't really inquired into what happiness really is. So it's something I actually encourage you to look into if you haven't already, many of you probably have, what happiness is for you. One definition I really like comes from the book I just mentioned, uh, the earlier book, the, um, How We Choose to Be Happy. It's quite a long definition, but I find it helpful. They say that our definition of happiness is a profound, enduring feeling of contentment, capability, and centeredness. It's a rich sense of well-being that comes from knowing that you can deal productively and creatively with all life offers, both the good and the bad. It's knowing your internal self and responding to your real needs rather than the demands of others. And it's a deep sense of engagement, living in the moment and enjoying life's bounty. Now, as I was pondering all this, I started to wonder about the overlap between a happiness set point and a meditation or a mindfulness set point. And is there such a thing as a mindfulness set point? And what's the, what's the correlation between happiness and mindfulness? With a definition like this, you can really see the overlap between what our practice experience can lead us to, to have and this definition of happiness. It's a deep sense of engagement, living in the moment and enjoying life's bounty. So there is a connection here, I really think. And so some of the research on happiness, I think, applies to our meditation practice and our mindfulness set point, because I think there's a strong correlation between our ability to be present and the capacity we have for happiness and joy in our life. And they're also actually doing a lot of research in meditation and the effect it has on people and really seeing that, yes, Meditation, especially intense meditation, not too dissimilar from what we're doing here, can have profound changes on our, actually on our physiology, really even changing 
neural pathways. When they do MRIs on experienced meditators, they see different parts of the brain light up under certain conditions that are unusual or different to people who haven't meditated. And actually, um, a couple of years ago, the retreat we teach on the East Coast, the long three-month retreat, a bunch of researchers from the University of Madison came and tested the yogis at the beginning of the retreat and then at the end of the retreat. And the results haven't been fully published yet, but they saw immediately um, doing the data. And it was, a lot of it was, some of it was acuity kind of testing, you know, just their actual mindfulness. But some of it was physiological. They took blood samples to test stress-related markers in, and I don't even know what it was that they were testing, but they saw that the, the, these people had changed over the period of the meditation retreat. So there is research being done that shows that sustained practice and inclination of the mind towards connection, mindfulness, contentment, equanimity, does actually change us in some deep, profound way. So um, it's actually amazing what, what is going to happen in our culture if these kind of results get widely known. Because meditation is still somewhat of a um, fringe activity. As, as mainstream it, as it feels to us that it's getting, considered where it, considering where it started from, it's still pretty out there for a lot of people. But really uh, very credible, sci credible scientists are discovering that it does have an effect. Unfortunately, one of the things they've discovered is they, the, the, to get to a level of proficiency in anything, and that means playing a piano and learning a language or something, takes about 10,000 hours. So I don't know how many you're going to clock on this retreat, but um, this, it's, it's a lot. To, uh, this is to really get to some level of proficiency. But I think that anything that we do, as I said, moves us in that direction, makes that possibility greater of bringing, changing our actual set point of our capacity for mindfulness and therefore happiness. I think this is what's true. Because it's important to remember that all of the time on retreat, in our lives, but definitely on retreat, we're cultivating something. It's actually a little scary to think about. We're always cultivating something. Isn't it better to be, have, to be something that you want to cultivate something wholesome rather than greed, aversion, and delusion. Unfortunately, we spend a lot of time cultivating greed, aversion, and delusion in all of its different uh, manifestations because we're not aware, because we don't recognize that that's what we're doing. We're just identified in those experiences or mind states. And the process here is really to wake up to this fact of the choices that we're making and begin to make wiser and more compassionate, more skillful choices about our response to experience, about how we relate to what's happening. So I'm, you know, we're all here on this side anyway, and I trust that you are on that side as well, here because you believe this, that meditation actually does change us. And I'm not saying, you know, that in some one moment, the thunderbolt kind of lightning experience where you, know, you get enlightened, whatever that might be, that's possible, of course. But I think more it is this gradual process of a deepening of wisdom and a, a softening and an awakening of our hearts and minds. And this is what we're engaged in here. 
I can remember after my first retreat, many, many years ago, my first retreat was in India in the early 80s, and I didn't have a clue about meditation. I went to sit a 10-day retreat with S.N. Goenka in India, and uh, it was very intense for me. You know, the, he's a very strong teacher and very inspiring, but hard practice. But it was life-changing for me. It set the direction for the rest of my life. And from that time on, the choices that I made in my life were all about what will help me stay connected to practice, to the Dhamma, to serving, to practicing, and now resulting in, in actually having the privilege of being able to teach, all from that first retreat and my commitment that it awoke in me. So it really changed me quite profoundly. I remember coming back from that retreat, I'd actually been living with my sister in India in McLeod Gunge, and she had stayed behind, and I'd gone down to Jaipur to do this retreat and came back. And she said to me later, that retreat really changed you. Said for about two weeks, you were nice to me. <laughs> so, you know, there's one way you could say, well, two weeks, you know, that's pretty good. <laughs> it's not a long time. But it did have effects on, on that level, but I think the main thing was the direction it set for my life. But having now practiced for many, many years, I can really say that meditation has changed me. And I think for, for all of us here, as teachers, and I know for, for many, if not all of you out there, it's had profound changes on us. It's actually been quite amazing. And so we're all here out of this possibility of change, of, of, of not to grasp onto anything or to say, you know, I want to be like this, but just to increase our sense of well-being, a sense of contentment, to manifest more a loving heart towards ourselves and others, to be more awake, to be more free. But in the early days of retreat, what we struggle a lot with are difficult experiences of mind and body and varying forms of what we call the kalesas, I think I mentioned them last night, of greed, aversion, and delusion, spacing out. We struggle a lot in the early days, if not, you know, obviously through all the retreat. And as I was reflecting on all of these different themes, happiness, mindfulness, and how much we struggle, how much difficulty there can be on retreat, I started to think how even those struggles where we get caught in, in the kalesas, in the, the torments of mind, they're all actually a way that even that struggle is a way that we think we're going to find happiness. Even in the struggle, in the being lost in wanting, in aversion, in spacing out, in restlessness or doubt, all of those are ways we're trying to find some peace, some resolution, some satisfaction, some ease. And this is, in some ways, our main delusion is that somehow these things are going to do it for us. Because we do it so often, we have to think there's a payoff in it, as distorted as they may be. We don't set out to get caught in these hindrances. It's certainly not what we came here to cultivate or what we want to um, experience. The five hindrances of, of greed, aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, and doubt. This is not what we want, not what we signed up for. If we could just stay with, though, the bare experience 
especially of these early days of retreat, of just aches or just tiredness or just this movement of energetic movement of the heart or mind towards wanting something, we could, we could work with it skillfully. But the thing is, we struggle. We get caught. We identify. We, and even we're caught even in our pushing away of not wanting. And it becomes like flypaper where we just get stuck more and more. The more we try to push away, the more we get stuck, and we end up in what can become a multiple hindrance attack. And we, don't, we think that we're tr trying to get out of it, that these movements of aversion or wanting or, or struggling with restlessness, if, we, if you look really deeply, at its heart is, I want to be happy. I want out of this, or I want more of this. But its actual experience, if we can step back a little, is so painful. But we don't see that. This is our delusion. Yet we get caught again and again and again in the struggle and the resistance. I saw this cartoon a while ago in the New Yorker. caught my eye. It was called The Strip Mall of the Seven Deadly Sins. And it was, I forget her name. I should look it up. I know the art. Roz... Roz, someone? Hmm? Chaz. Chaz, yes. She always does these great little wispy drawings, people. So it was her. She's very clever. And so there were seven stores in this strip mall that, that somehow epitomized each of the seven deadly sins, like pride or sloth or gluttony or whatever. And I thought, that's a great idea. I'll come up with one for the five hindrances. So this is the strip mall of the five hindrances. <laughs> See which one you find yourself in most often. So greed. The first one is the, the restaurant with the big sign, all-you-can-eat buffet. <laughs> Aversion. The martial arts studio where they're boxing and fighting, or the boxing studio. Sleepiness. The lazy boy furniture store. You know? <laughs> Get your recliner and go back. Restlessness. The video game arcade. You know, <laughs> And then doubt, the last one. The metaphysical bookstore, full of books on... <laughs> You know, the cosmos, and is there a god, or whatever. So this is what is arrayed before us as we do our practice with all this sincere intention. But we find ourselves walking up and down the strip mall of the hindrances. Our practice is simply to recognize that that's what's here, to see how enticing it is to open that door and go in. And that's the challenge. That's why the hindrances catch us again and again. Somehow we think that in there, there is happiness. But really, you have to ask yourself, have you ever felt good after trying to get your money's worth from an all-you-can-eat buffet? You know, it's a losing proposition. Or the video game arcade. You know, it's just painful. But again and again, we open that door and go in because somehow, subconsciously, usually, we think that in there somewhere there's happiness. And so this is what I want to emphasize tonight or wake us up to a little is to see how enticing it is to go into these stores, these places, and how it's not where happiness is to be found. You know, and a lot of you might be saying, well, I don't go there because, you know, it feels good or whatever. I'm just stuck in it. But even in that stuckness, there's some, the identification, the, even the sense of self gets created. There's some uh, satisfaction we get from that. It's just a, another way of looking at the hindrances that, that I got to thinking about in these last couple of days. 
And it can often happen on, on retreat that we get caught up in one of these really lost in it, whether it's desire or aversion or confusion. And somehow we come out of it, we bring skillful means or time passes or whatever, and you look back and you go, what was that all about? You, know, you really can't figure out how you got stuck in there that long, but when you're in there, it's your reality. There doesn't seem to be a way out. And so just to, to have this sense, when you find yourself caught in one of these really difficult places, one of these places that we get lost in, to remember that there are always alternatives, that this isn't where your true home is or happiness is to be found, and to, to see what tools that you have to come out and to make a different choice. And this is what our practice is all about. It's about waking up to where we are, acknowledging, recognizing, and accepting that we're lost again in greed or aversion or whatever it might be, and so the big key is the recognition and accepting, and then bringing skillful means. Often the accepting is enough. We get interested in it, and that itself transforms it. But we learn to develop skills that actually allow us to, to, to cultivate true happiness and not these distortions or deluded forms of happiness. So it's not bad meditation that these hindrances arise, that these experiences happen. It's natural. You know, we have a mind and a body. We've practiced many years of getting, we've had many years of practice of getting lost in these kind of mind states. So that's not the issue. It's really what do we do when we recognize that that's happening. That's what's key. So I often say it's not that we get out of balance. We all will get out of balance in our lives on retreat. But the question is, how quickly do we recognize that that's what's happening and find a way to come back into balance, into acceptance, into the moment, into our bodies, into what's really happening, into what's a more skillful relationship on to, be, to have with this. So our primary um, tool, our, our most skillful uh, attitude is just this one of waking up to this is what's happening, that I'm caught here, I'm stuck in this pattern of thinking, this movement of energy in the body or the mind, so the recognition. And along with that naming, that recognition, can come almost automatically, but sometimes we need to just breathe and open to, take a moment to fully accept, here I am, lost in this. And with that, we're right back with our mindfulness again. We're not caught, we're not lost in the hindrance. And then a second approach can be to bring skillful means, to bring antidotes in, and I'll talk more about this as we go on, but really to recognize that this is often a lot of our practice. You know, we don't sit here lost in bliss and love and contentment and happiness. The mind goes off into these trains of thought. The body contracts into resistance or fear. And so to be willing to do this over and over again, to recognize and name, accept, and then out of that bring in the skillful means. This is what we do here again and again. Don't judge yourself for this pattern happening a thousand times a day. This is our meditation practice. 
So the first of these hindrances is that of greed, the force of wanting in the mind. And of course, it's often for sense experiences, for objects, for, for um, relationships, for people, you know, that force of wanting. But I've been looking at it in my own practice recently. And of course, those things can arise. But when I look at what my mind is moving towards most often in this force of wanting, is actually a little more subtle than this. It's more in the realm of trying to make sense of my experience in some way, to plan it or to control it, to, or retrospectively to understand it, to try to put it in a box. And in, I've been looking at this a lot in my meditation and seeing how much of my time is spent doing that you know, going over what has happened and trying to project into what might happen, but all out of this movement of desire, of wanting to control. So it's been really, you know, I, I knew that was a lot of what I did, but to put it in this form of that's desire, to really see how much that's that movement of desire. And sometimes this movement of desire can come out of this sense we have a lot, again, in this culture of, I should be happy. Again, going back to this distorted kind of understanding of happiness, or I need this to be happy, whatever it might be, this object, this experience, or the stopping of this experience, that I should be in control of my life, of my household, of my job, my work, my responsibilities. And the fact that I don't feel that yet in control, everything perfectly in alignment, is just because I haven't tried hard enough. I haven't got it right yet. And all I need to do is just think a little more, plan a little more, effort a little more. And somehow out there is perfection, that perfection is possible. And I know for many of us, this can be a place where we get caught up. And when things don't work out, we can blame ourselves. You know, that something we're doing is wrong. It's not because there's this idea presented that it should all be okay that we should be able to do this. So just to begin to look at these more subtle ways that desire can manifest. Of course, it can come up any time our current experience isn't good enough. You know, whether it's aches or pains in the body, or we don't have the cushion we need, or the warm jacket we should have brought, all of those kinds of things. It can be much bigger than that. These deep yearnings we have for some uh, experience, some completion that we're looking for, some way we'll be fulfilled through a different job or even a spiritual experience. What's important to see is how this force of desire in and of itself is never satisfied. We might temporarily satisfy it by the gaining of whatever it is, HDTV, you know, and I can't believe, you know, how many widescreen, it's like if you don't have one, you're behind the times in this country. And every magazine or every thing is always widescreen TVs, big screen TVs, or an iPhone. That's, you know, whatever it is, got to have it to, to, to be happy. Those are, you might get, so you might get one of those objects. And the, the desire for that particular object might be quenched. But desire itself does not get quenched by the gaining of that object. And we, once we really start to look, we see how desire is just kind of like this big searchlight. 
and it might land on something and get that, but as soon as that's in its grasp, it's on and bright and looking for the next thing. This is the way it works. I, I uh, read this great book by this woman, Temple Grandin. She's actually autistic and uses the fact of her autism to help her really understand animals. She's an animal behaviorist. And she wrote this great book called Animals in Translation. And she said, all of us, we're all animals, have what they call a curiosity, interest, or anticipation mode. And she said, it's a really core emotion called seeking. And it's sort of hard, I wouldn't say hardwired, but it's very much in there in, in our biological nature. And she said, I hate these experiments, but she quoted one experiment where she said, animals that have that part of the brain kind of have the ability to keep stimulating that part of the brain themselves, you know, they press a little lever or whatever, will keep pressing it until they basically wear themselves out, until they're exhausted, because it's so um, much part of our nature to keep, to, to keep seeking, to keep looking. And we can kind of feel that energy in desire, that quenchless nature of um, desire. And society is kind of like that, you know. Instead of pressing the button, we just have the media out there just always presenting us with more things we should want or places we should go or things we should do. It, it's endless. So it's not about, when I talk about seeking, it's, you know, there's obviously a positive side to that, which is this level of curiosity or energy, enthusiasm we can have for experiences, for our spiritual practice, that's all very wholesome and helpful. But it's again really important to bring discriminating wisdom to this movement that is there. We all have it to some degree or another. And as I said earlier, start to recognize what are the things that will actually bring us true happiness and what are just keeping us bound on that cycle of wanting and more wanting. Through our practice, we see that the very nature of all things, all conditioned things, is that they are impermanent. Objects, our emotions, just the body itself, our body, other people's body. So things change or our relationship to them changes. This is inherent in the way things are. And so we begin to know that in a true and deep way for ourselves. So the Buddha's advice is to look for happiness in things that don't change, in what doesn't change, in the possibility of a true and deep happiness when we let go of this sense of endless wanting. We actually come to a deep and, and true, peaceful and still heart and mind, not dependent on external conditions. The next of the hindrances is, is basically the opposite of that, though it's interesting how there's two sides of a coin. First hindrance is that of greed, of wanting. The second is that of aversion or pushing away. But we can see even as we push something away, we're, we're stuck with it, we're connected with it. It's, a, it's often the same movement, the expression of ill will or irritation. Somehow that things aren't right the way they are. This experience shouldn't be happening. This shouldn't be like that, or even I shouldn't be like this. And we often add to the situation all of those subsets of aversion, of 
uh, indignation or self-righteousness or blame or guilt or shame. It's, it can be a whole um, challenging mix of, of experiences, of emotions that can come up. I, I remember reading one teacher's advice about this. He said, whoever it was said, whenever you feel anger, you should say, may I be free of this anger? This rarely works, but talking to yourself in public will encourage others to leave you alone. <laughs> so try that around here, leave you alone. But anger is really, uh, we're playing in, in dangerous ground. It's, it's tricky because what usually, what's seductive about, us, about it is we usu usually, if not always, feel it's justified, that I'm right and they're wrong. And how can we let go of that position? It's the truth of things, you know? They shouldn't do that. It shouldn't be this way. They should have known this was going to happen. And so we get caught, we get stuck in that identification with that position. And so it's hard to recognize the suffering nature of anger when we're so convinced of, of how right it is, how appropriate it is to feel this anger. And of course, there is some, there can be some discriminating wisdom in anger. You know, when we see injustices being committed or that someone is harming someone else, that there can be an energy that can come out of that that can really allow us to change things. So it's not always, um, you know, it's not, nothing is ever black and white. But what we've really got to, to see is the times when we just get so identified, we can't open to any other way of, of being with this experience. And so we need to acknowledge that the anger is there, that's what we're feeling, or the ill will, or the aversion, and recognize that we don't have to act out of it, that the choice point is there to take a moment, take a breath, be with the experience, and see if we can work more skillfully with whatever's happening. And meditation, the whole Dharma actually, gives us this powerful lesson, this powerful teaching, that no one can make us feel anything. It's actually really challenging if we take that in. No one can make us feel anything. We often feel, well, I'm feeling this because of this, and I'm, it's right that I should. This is the appropriate response. But this is all conditioned responses. Once we start to take responsibility for our inner experience and our outer expression, we realize that we have to bring more skill and more kindness to both of those. So aversion can express itself in many ways, and I'll just mention a few and, and we'll talk more about them, like the judging mind, that, that, that critical voice that's always judging is better than or worse than inner or outer, is so um, prevalent for most of us, so we'll probably talk a lot more about that. Or resistance, just that unwillingness to be in the moment, the fantasy that we could be elsewhere. Anyone had that fantasy in the last day or two? You know, I could be home, I could be doing this, I could be, I hesitate to say it, watching the Super Bowl. <laughs> just say it quietly. It's, it's a really common form of aversion on retreat, just resistance to being here, that indulging in that fantasy of being elsewhere, or boredom, just a lack of interest 
in what's going on, that this isn't worth my time and attention. Fear, another strong manifestation of aversion, just to see how fear is always about the future. If we can check in and find, for most of us, I mean, there may be some times when it's direct and right here, but we're projecting into the future that it's going to get worse. And if we can just see that fear is just this thoughts in the mind and experience in the body, we can actually begin to bring it into our mindfulness. And so most of these we'll talk more about in other talks because they're so important to work with skillfully. The next hindrance is that of sleepiness, dullness. Guy spoke a little bit about that this morning. And it's really when we're in this ex experience, I just can't be bothered, this warm fog descending on us. Uh, and it's so common in the early days of retreat. So I really encourage you not to struggle with it overly. Um, it's just so prevalent, you know, to do what you can to work skillfully with it. But in these early days, it's just a, such a common, un understandable experience. Later in the retreat, we might say work a little differently. Later in the retreat, sleepiness can actually be a form of resistance, a form of unwillingness to be with what's actually happening. But for right now, just to do the simple, skillful means that you can of um, you know, arousing energy through the things Guy already said. You know, I find one of the most helpful things is just deeper breathing, just to alter my breath a little. Not so I'm doing, you know, hyper, uh, holotropic breath work kind of stuff, but just a little more rhythmic, deeper breathing to bring more oxygen in, to straighten the posture, open your eyes, look at light, vigorous walking, all of those kinds of things can, can be helpful to work with sleepiness. Restlessness and worry is the, the fourth of the hindrances. And it's interesting how, um, again, like the first two, desire and aversion, seem so different, almost polar opposite. Same with sleepiness and restlessness. How aligned they actually are and how you can go from one to the other in the space of a moment or two, from being totally restless to just falling asleep or vice versa. I actually found on one retreat where I was really having a problem with him, um, sleepiness at one certain sitting that the working with my breath um, really woke me up and actually that sitting became my best sitting because the calm was there out of the sleepiness to bring the interest. And then when I had restlessness, I found that working with my breath in the same way of just deeper rhythmic breathing gave me a stronger object to pay attention to and allowed, again, the balance of mind to come in. So it was, it was interesting that the same antidote worked for both. I recently read a, a collection of short stories by Anne Beatty, and in it was one character who always felt, and this is a quote, that everywhere in the world, a little something was out of place all the time. That's the feeling of restlessness or worry. It's just like things aren't quite right. And again, it gets back to what I was talking about a little earlier, that sense of things should be, I should be in control. Things should be perfect. And if they're not, I'm just not moving the pieces around fast enough. And restlessness can feel like that, just that energy arising in the body and in the mind. I have a friend who's um, a very capable person, you know, very good in her life, taking care of things. But she said she had this re revelation the other day 
where she just realized so much of her stress and worry and tiredness in her life comes out of this feeling that she should be in control, that she should be moving fast enough that everything gets done and everything gets done properly. And she just kind of recognized, it was like a new thought, I don't have to control everything. And it was such a relief for her. And what's interesting is that in her life, she's actually an ER nurse in one of our busiest and most overworked um, hospitals in the middle of San Francisco, where of course it's very challenging, life and death all the time. But she says there, she doesn't have this experience of worry about things because she knows she does her job well, she does what she can, and she can't control what happens. But in her home life, she always has this sense that she should be able to be perfectly in control. And sort of putting the two together and just letting go was a big revelation. So this restlessness can come out of this, again, delusion that it shouldn't be this way, that I should be able, that I shouldn't have this. Uh, 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 the mind is always flitting on from one thing to the next. And it can express in the mind, can express in the body. Obsessive thoughts about things are all ways that um, uh, restlessness can manifest. It can actually be an, almost an electric feeling in the body. Of you're almost going to jump out of your seat. Some way, so I really encourage you, if you have this exper experience of restlessness, to really experiment with different ways of working with it. Because again, I found that almost total opposite things can work. To get really spacious can be an antidote. But I sometimes find that I can't do that. The restlessness just keeps me coming back to these worries and these, these experiences in the body. So I, I've actually found that getting very minute and sinking my attention in to the experience can help and, and really exploring it quite in a detailed way. Sometimes all it takes is just the willingness to stay with our experience for one moment more. Can I be with this for one more moment? And you find that you can. Ajahn Sumedho tells this great story. He's an um, American monk who has a monastery in England where he just had such difficult experiences in Thailand in his early days. And he would just say, I can't bear this anymore. This is impossible. And then he'd look and he'd say, well, one more moment I can bear it. I can bear it. And then it would come, I can't bear this anymore. And then he'd be there the next moment. Couldn't get out of it. He's still in Thailand, nowhere to go, and find that he could. So just that one moment of staying with it can help. The last hindrance is that of doubt. And it can be the most difficult, the most seductive, because it makes us question everything. And often, most particularly, ourselves. I can't do this, or why am I doing this? And I have to say, I don't think I've ever had a retreat, and I've been on so many, where I haven't at some time or other had the thought, why did I think it was a good idea I should do this? Because retreats are difficult. You know, we all struggle with them. There are always challenges. And so to just recognize those movements of mind, of questioning the practice, questioning yourself, questioning the teachings or the teachers, as this movement of doubt that tries to get us off the cushion, get us out of this process of awakening that we're in, and really work with it just as that. So to really take it as an experiment again, you know, the, the Buddha said often, ehipasiko, come and see for yourself. This is, uh, it, so 
working with doubt isn't to just move into blind faith and go, okay, well, whatever they say works for me. Kind of, it doesn't, that doesn't usually work. We need to see where the challenges are or the um, uh, obstacles are in our practice and be able to be with that, to open to that, to explore that, and to see what happens out of those experiments. We need to stick with the practice, though. So the, the, the challenging thing is one of the main counterpoints to doubt is obviously faith. And it's so hard to have faith if you're doubting. But just that one moment more that I spoke about with restlessness can actually also help with the doubt. Well, let's just see what happens if I try this, if I stick with this a little longer. And it's really important to see doubt just like another hindrance. Doubt is just a string of words in the mind and perhaps a certain kind of feeling in the body. That's all it is. If you can see it as, as that, it has no capacity to confuse you or take you out of the practice. So labeling it as doubt is really helpful. And of course, reconnecting with your intentions to, to be at this retreat, your experience of other retreats, the faith you have in the teachings, and of course to check in with us if it's something you know that you're really struggling with about why do this practice or what's you know the doubt about your own capacity. It's what I'm really trying to convey here. It's not that you just want to quash doubt. Doubt is a very important part of our practice, but it needs to be the kind of doubt that leads us to inquire and wake up not the kind of doubt that pushes us off the cushion and into delusion. So for all of these hindrances, as I said earlier, the, the most important part of working with them is to know that that is what's happening, that I'm actually experiencing doubt or sleepiness or restlessness or whatever. And there's a really good mnemonic that one of um, our fellow teachers, Michelle McDonald, came up with to help you in this practice. It's called RAIN. And it stands for recognition, acceptance, investigation or inquiry or interest, and non-identification. Really helpful. Recognition. You name it. You know this is what's happening. Oh, I'm caught in wanting. This is that force of needing to control things or planning, acceptance, just to see that this is the truth of this moment. That's all it is. It's just what's happening. Interest or investigation, just to get curious, how is this manifesting for me right now? Can I open to this? Can I work with this? How does it feel in the body or the mind? And once I do that, once I step out of the the story, to look at what happens next. That's always such an important key. And then non-identification, to know that this isn't who you are, to not take this to be the whole picture of, of yourself, that, that these are just conditioned arisings and they are impermanent. And if you bring mindfulness, awareness to them, that in and of itself can transform them, can show their impermanent nature. So it's really important to see that vipassana isn't just a passive sitting back 
am watching like a movie show what happens. A lot of the time practice can be like that. It's a little more engaged, but not quite like watching a movie, but it is just that sense of whatever's happening, opening to it moment after moment. But that's not the be-all and end-all of vipassana practice. We need to bring our wisdom to the practice. We need to understand what's going on. We need to see the conditioned nature of our experience and that when these certain conditions come into place, this experience arises. If I get caught in that and struggle, then that experience arises. I get lost in desire or wanting or aversion. If the same set of experiences arise and I bring mindfulness to them, they can be transformed. They can, I can see their impermanent nature. I can actually find some interest or excitement or ease around them. So it's this constant bringing of our intelligence and our wisdom, not in a sense of trying to figure everything out, but just in this willingness to meet things again and again and again. Sometimes the hindrances are with us so strongly that all of these kinds of attitude, uh, interventions or skillful means don't work. And sometimes just doing turning to metta practice, many of you are familiar with it, we began teaching it this afternoon, is a really skillful response. Just to bring some sense of caring or kindness to your experience, or even the compassion practice that we'll teach later on, to acknowledge, I'm suffering with this, this is challenging for me. So we learn different ways of working with experience. If something is really difficult to know, you don't have to stay with it all the time. Go to something neutral, like the breath or sound. Make the awareness very big. Or go walking, really change the posture so that you release the, the stuckness in something. Learn for yourself what your skillful means are and be willing to use them. To be willing to see that getting stuck in that store, whatever that store is for you, isn't the way to happiness. That there is a path presented to you that shows the true way to happiness. To, to really recognize that we can wake up out of this delusion, these, the, these hindrances, these difficult mind states, and out of that come into states of great ease and contentment and acceptance and well-being. This is possible for all of us. So, as Guy said, we like to end our talks with just sitting for a moment. You don't need to change your posture. For a minute, you can just stay wherever you are, as long as the main thing is just to let the words settle before we move into the next phase of the evening. So let's just sit quietly, not to think about the talk, but just let the words go. Come into your present moment experience as it is, and know that from any talk, you'll take what you need to take away from it. You don't need to hold on to anything.
thank you for your attention. Again, there's about half hour for walking period. We'll have our chanting again at the end of the next sitting. And I think again tonight we'll make that sitting a little shorter than the 40 minutes it'll be in a few days. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.